You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I am CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and today I have a good colleague and friend, Nick Merkin, with us. Welcome, Nick. Hey, thanks, CJ. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. You know, Nick, I appreciate you, you coming back on. I was looking past through our past podcast. You were like one of the very first guests that when we first started this, like over five, six years ago, something crazy like that. Wow. Is it really that long ago? I don't even I know. know that co- podcasts were invented that long ago. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I think it was almost five years ago. Uh, and I think you were episode number five. So I'm, I'm so glad that you're you're willing to come back and talk to us some more. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again for having me on. And yeah, happy to talk. Yeah. You know, Nick, um, we, we usually like to have our guests introduce themselves a little bit. Tell us how you got involved in compliance. You know, maybe give a little bit of your background and then we'll jump into, you know, some more specific questions about our topic today. But we'd love to hear a little bit about you and what you're doing. Sure. So in, in terms of my background, I, I'm, I'm really a healthcare lawyer by background. I, uh, I started off my career actually more on the litigation side, defending um, government investigations and different lawsuits um, for healthcare organizations. And around the time, you know, maybe we're getting on about 10, 11 years ago, around the time the Affordable Care Act um, started rolling out, we recognized, uh, a partner and I recognized a need for sort of more proactive compliance program building. We were seeing clients come to us and saying, you know, um, there are, you know, more um, affirmative requirements to build out organizational compliance plans and engage in, uh, you know, have compliance infrastructure and really engage um, in, you know, the process of compliance that that, you know, has really evolved and, and matured over the last, you know, 10 years or so. And, um, you know, we saw it as an opportunity and, and, and you know, really uh, formed a consulting firm and, and included in that firm um, a lot of different kinds of healthcare professionals, people with sort of facility management experience, um, a number of nurses and, you know, clinicians. Um, and, um, you know, we've, we've, we've grown a lot. And, and, you know, a lot of what we do today is, work in a role as like a fractional or, or interim compliance officer for organizations. And, you know, one thing that that's interesting to me is when we first started doing this, and you know, I'm saying like, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, a lot of the work we did was a result of enforcement. You know, we'd get a call from, you know, a colleague of mine who was, you know, defending a, uh, um, you know, some some kind of compliance investigation or action against a healthcare provider. And they would say, okay, you know, um, as part of our negotiation, you know, we're negotiating a CIA, a, a corporate integrity agreement, or, you know, we're going to sit down with the Department of Justice and try to negotiate a settlement. One of the things we want to show them is that, you know, we're really proactively recognizing that 
there was some kind of deficiency here and you know we're getting our compliance program together we've got our policies and procedures in place we're starting uh, you know an education and training um, you know regimen over the course of the year we're starting internal audits and monitoring and we have a hotline set up now and all sorts of things like that um, and you know that that was good work but What's interesting to me and, and, you know, in a way really gratifying is what I see in the, in the compliance world is a lot of our incoming clients, you know, I'm getting calls from bankers, from venture capital funds, from private equity groups, um, or even just, um, you know, facility owners, different kinds of facility owners, you know, be they, um, you know, hospital, it could be addiction treatment, could be skilled nursing, it could be um, things like autism and, and audiology and saying, hey, um, right. you know, I just talked to my banker and, you know, we're engaging in, uh, you know, either we're, we're looking to be acquired or we're looking to acquire other organizations. Right. And, you know, my banker says, we need to lay this paper trail of compliance. Can you help us with that? You know, we have a one-year time horizon, a two-year time horizon, a three-year time horizon. And instead of the compliance function being, you know, really just a cost for a healthcare organization. I think this right. hopefully will be gratifying to hear from, you know, by a lot of your listeners who might be compliance officers. Um, but, you know, is also really, uh, uh, you know, a way to, to increase your value because, yes. you know, during due diligence, what, you know, the lawyers or the bankers or whomever is going to be looking for is, you know, let me look at your incident, you know, your incident log from the past couple of years. Have you had any government investigations and how did you deal with them? You know, right. have you had HIPAA breaches and how did you address them? Are there lingering liabilities um, that, you know, we may have to account for in the transaction or that might even make us walk away from the transaction? Um, and, you know, if we see you know, a balance sheet with, with revenue, you know, is that righteous revenue, so to speak, you know, is exactly. that, is that revenue, you know, coming from potential kickback violations or Stark law violations or something like that, or even false claims act violations, or right. is that, you know, clean revenue um, for lack of a better word, that, that's really come from, you know, quality delivery of healthcare. And that, you know, that has made, you know, my day to life, um, you know, both from a, both from a perspective of, you know, new clients coming in, but also just in terms of the work that we do, um, a lot more fun and, and, yes. you know, really a feeling that, Hey, we are part of the team and, and, you know, compliance is, you know, not only something like an insurance policy or a way to mitigate risk, which it is, and that's certainly important, but it's also a way to increase value. And that, um, you know, I think that's very fulfilling for those of us in the compliance field. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. I have seen that, um, and I think you're spot on that, you know, historically it was more a reaction, right? Somebody's getting investigated and, and DOJ or OIG or whatever. And now it's, it's more of, okay, we need to get our house in order and make sure we're clean and good. And, and I've even seen that as well. Um, and it's an interesting kind of transition that's been happening. So uh, I think that's, that's really interesting. So tell us that the firm's name that you are, uh, that you lead is Compliagent, right? That's right. Um, and, and yeah, yeah sorry, go, go on. Now, just, just to say a little bit about it, um, you know, as I mentioned, we have really a mix of different kinds of healthcare experience that, you know, can, can be brought to bear on compliance problems, compliance challenges, you know, building out and maintaining compliance programs for organizations. And, and I think, um, you know, 
that's one of the great things about working in ComplyGen is, you know, I'm interacting with people who really have expertise in areas that I don't, you know, like I mentioned, yes. I'm, I'm a lawyer by background and, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I can, um, you know, I can walk across the hall or pick up the phone and talk to, um, you know, some of our nurses with, you know, combined decades of, you know, real in the trenches healthcare experience, which is, um, which is very different than, you know, my background. And, you know, by the same token, I can talk to somebody who has managed a healthcare facility or, you know, someone right. like me, who's been on the other side of, you know, has been in a courtroom defending, um, you know, and, and, and bringing those kinds of perspectives to bear, I think can um, lead to really robust work in terms of, of building compliance infrastructure and, and um, compliance programs. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you and I were throwing around some ideas about what to talk about today. And we, we kind of landed on, you know, talking about this post-COVID, you know, healthcare world. I mean, we've all lived through something that I don't think any of us have lived through before. Lots of things have changed in healthcare. Um, new services are you know, being offered more frequently, things like telehealth and those sorts of things. But we sure. thought it would be kind of fun for our listeners to kind of go back and forth a little bit and talk about what are some of these risks that emerging compliance risks as they relate to, you know, kind of, I know we might not technically be post-COVID. This is, you know, the public health emergency, I think has been extended right. a little bit longer, but you know, where I think we're all kind of ready to kind of put it behind us, whether that happens or not. And For there's sure. some new compliance things. Um, you know, what are some of those initial thoughts that you have kind of in a, in a post-COVID healthcare compliance world? Yeah, well, well, taking a step back, I, I think um, the pandemic revealed a lot of weaknesses and deficiencies in our healthcare system um, yeah. that, that, you know, give rise to compliance challenges. And, you know, to give a couple of examples, um, you know, first of all, even the payment and reimbursement challenge, like we have, in a, you know, as, as we all know, primarily a, an employer-based healthcare coverage system. Right. Um, you know, there, there's, there's government payors like Medicare and, and Medicaid, certainly. Um, but, you know, most, most Americans get their, um, healthcare coverage through work. If you know, if you talk to people in just about any other country about that idea, they would they would look at you like, you know, that's weird. Um, exactly. Why should your job have something to do with whether or not you have healthcare or what kind of healthcare or right. what doctor I can go to? Right. Um, and there's historical reasons for that that are you know kind of beyond the, the scope of this discussion. But um, you know, reimbursement challenges like we you know people, you know, doing things, and you mentioned telemedicine. So, you know, by necessity, if, you know, thinking about behavioral health or mental health issues, a lot of that moved online very quickly. Right. And, um, you know, can you get reimbursed for that? You know, you know, wh right. what constitutes um, a patient encounter? You know, how does that work when it might be over the telephone or might be over a, um, you know, some kind of platform? How do I, how do, you know, there, there's, um, PHI, there's, you know, protected yes. health information being, you know, going back and forth during that conversation. How, how do I make sure that's protected when I may be sitting in my basement and my patient might be, um, you know, hundreds of miles away and in, in, you know, driving in her car or something like right. that. And, and what happens, you know, relatedly, what happens when we have, um, you know, challenges to, to, you know, really keeping, you know, workforce challenges during, during the pandemic, as we saw, like a lot of, you know, people tested positive, healthcare workers tested positive and right. couldn't come to work. So, you know, number one, when are we justified in saying, well, if I'm licensed in state A, you know, am I allowed to 
to practice in state B? And, and, you know, what about in an emergency situation where somebody really needs care? And, you know, maybe even I can physically get there, but I'm not licensed there. You know, should right. we start thinking proactively about, you know, making those, uh, making those allowances? Um, you know, we talked about, so, you know, just to give a couple more, like, you know, data um, we spoke about, right? Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm treating someone and I'm not their usual healthcare provider because maybe their usual healthcare provider is sick and I'm brought in on an emergency basis, uh, you know, how, how do we make sure that data is accessible so that I, you know, that I, I can treat the patient effectively, um, you know, if I'm a healthcare yeah. provider. Yeah, we want it protected, but, you know, I think one of the challenges we see in compliance, and, and I'm sure many, uh, you know, people listening can relate to this, is like, you know, you're, you're sort of stuck between a push and a pull, right? Like, we want to protect data, but if we build our walls too high, um, that really you know, can make it really challenging, right? And make it challenging to be accessible. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in just, um, you know, there's there's things that are really maybe outside the scope of compliance, like just the, the you know, the public health response and what do we do with, um, you know, we have different state systems and different county systems and even different city systems. And I think we, we learned a lot of that, um, you know, streamlining that and coordinating that is, uh, um, you know, is really important. So, you know, I think yeah. some of those things um, we're going to see changed. And, and you know, I, I think we there was a lot of successes, too. And I think that, you know, I don't mean to be too down on the healthcare system. I still believe the United States has got the best healthcare system in the world. Um, but, you know, I think we always want to do better. And, yeah. you know, some of that, um, you know, falls on us as, as people in the compliance world to, uh, you know, to address. Yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about with um, the public health emergency is, you know, there, some things were because there was this immediate need for like telehealth and, and other avenues for communicating and accessing care. Some of those really strict requirements for telehealth that existed before the pandemic were loosened a little bit, you know, during sure. this public health emergency. But at some point, we don't know exactly when that declaration of a public health emergency is going to end and some of those requirements are going to be uh you know strengthened again and the loosening is going to have to be tightened those horses that were left out of the barn yeah. you're going to have to try to get those back in the barn and we've lived you know a couple of years now with kind of these loosened um regulations uh, to some extent for you know HIPAA OCR had their you know um loosening a little bit and and sure. you know, CMS and so one thing is that that's going to have to probably be brought back in and tightened. Have you thought about that at all? Or do you agree with that? Yeah, And, and, and you know, there's a lot of political lobbying going on. I, I think there's a lot of public sentiment, um, you know, for loosening those kinds of restrictions, particularly as it relates right. to telehealth. I mean, because even beyond um, the pandemic, you know, you can see, you know, you, you like I live in a big city. I live in L.A. So for for, you know, me or many of you know, people who live near me to get to a sophisticated healthcare provider, you know, with a real, you know, a specialist is really easy, right? I, right. I live like 10 minutes from Cedar sinai 15 minutes from UCLA, and, you know, probably a million providers in between. Right. But if you're living in a more rural area, where, you know, for example, taking an eye exam or bringing my child to an eye exam might mean that she needs to be taken out of school for an entire day. Right. Um, you know, what's the price of gas now? Like, 
you know, right. six, seven dollars a gallon. I may have to drive 200 miles um, to yep. to see uh, to see an eye specialist um, and, you know, take a day off work myself. You know, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of dollars of yep. resources getting burned to do that. So, you know, I think there's a lot of public sentiment that that some of those things can be made more efficient. But, you know, I'll, look, I'll defend the other side as well. I think there's um, more opportunities for fraud and abuse, um, you know, to bring it home to the compliance world a little bit that, you know, require us in the field um, to maybe make adjustments in our compliance programming. Like, for example, um, you know, you've got care delivered remotely, right? So it's right easier for things like identity fraud or easier to establish, you know, a fake doctor patient relationship and build that, Um, you know, there's marketing issues, right? So if I'm dealing with a patient pool that might not be just within driving distance of my office, now, if I can do telemedicine and I can practice across state lines, you know, I can be in Miami beach and treat a patient in, you know, Portland, Oregon, Um, you know, I'm, how do I market that? Right. So that's a very different kind of mass media, digital marketing. Um, and you know, there with that comes temptation for, you know, overutilization, unnecessary procedures, unnecessary medical supplies. Um, you know, we're seeing things like a big rise. And, and, and I think in, in, you know, from a efficiencies perspective and probably a cost perspective, but mail order pharmacies, exactly. um, you know, Drug diversion, which, you know, is always has always been an issue in, you know, places like hospitals and clinics. Um, you know, how do you address drug diversion issues when things are, are going through the mail? Um, right. And just, yeah, you know, also, I think all of these challenges, you know, th- th- there's that loosening and, and, and really our ability to deliver care in a different way, which, you know, is, is good in general, I think you know, if you, if you run the statistics for quality of care um, is going to create more compliance challenges. And, you know, if I am the compliance officer for my health system, you know, maybe it's my skilled nursing facility or my hospital, I have to think about, because, you know, there's still liability there, right? Um, That's right. You know, so I, I, I have to think and make sure that I'm adjusting the focus. You know, I may have to adjust policies. Um, I may have to, you know, nobody knows... In most cases, healthcare providers are not that sensitive to the differences that might be, you know, in an inpatient person, uh, in-person patient encounter versus um, a remote patient encounter, right? So things like um, consents and things like consents to record and and making the patient aware that um, there are limitations to... um, practice when you're when you're doing something remotely all that right. you have to make sure that your clinicians are getting that training um so that you know mistakes aren't made because again you know the the liability could come back to you um right. and, you know auditing monitoring things like that you know the, the examples that we just talked about um you know how's your marketing uh, how are your marketers marketing when they now know that they need to be successful marketers their geographic reach has to be much broader um, you know, are they saying things that are potentially impermissible or that imply, um, you know, things that they shouldn't imply? Are they, you know, potentially getting patient referrals from a source um, or, you know, with, with in some kind of manner that, you know, could be deemed improper? All those kinds of things, um, I think, are made more acute by, 
some of the good things that that arose during COVID. Yeah. And, you know, while you were uh, talking about those uh, principles, two cases came into my mind that I read recently, uh, DOJ type of settlements. One was a huge one a few months back when they when they have, you know, every year they kind of have their national fraud takedown type of thing. So you mentioned kind of bad actors, people who wake up in the morning wanting to do bad things and wanting to cheat the system have new ways to do it. And one of those uh, cases that was interesting to me was, and you kind of mentioned it was, was it medically necessary, you know, with certain orthotics or certain DME, durable medical equipment, were were those being ordered um, when there's no, you know, because a physician usually has to certify or somebody has to certify saying this, this product, this orthotic, this DME equipment, you know, is medically necessary. And so one of the big cases was fraud in that, in that arena where essentially docs were just, you know, taking kickbacks to kind of sign stuff that they never even really were making into individual determinations uh, for the medical necessity of those. That to me falls a little bit more like into this fraud category, right? Where people are trying to create a system where they're cheating and trying to get monies. Uh, the other one that came up that I thought was interesting, and I guess this is also potentially fraud. I don't know all the details. I just read the press release. It was a medical practice in Florida, um, and they were a pain pain management uh, practice. And this was during COVID. Remember early in COVID when a lot of elective procedures were canceled? Um, right. sure. You know, and so this medical practice that is pain management, they they were dealing with, uh, you know, they're doing procedures um, to manage people's pain, but they were they weren't emergent, right? So they, they were things that could be postponed. Well, this the governor of Florida said, look, all elective procedures are you know, postponed for this time period. And this particular practice, it was alleged that they went to telehealth and previous to the pandemic, they were really only seeing their patients once a month. And during the time when they could not do these elective procedures, they upped their volume to, to seeing patients every two weeks. And it was alleged that, look, why was that all of a sudden medically necessary? I guess there there may have been some uh, paper trail suggesting that they were doing this to make up for the lost revenue of their elect- elective procedures. And so they turned to telehealth and they may have followed all the regulations, you know, of, of documenting the, the telehealth visit, et cetera. But if it wasn't medically necessary to begin right. with, was that really appropriate? And were they doing it to kind of, you know, pad the revenue that they were losing for, for, from the canceled elective procedures. So those two things were kind of interesting. You may be aware of those already, and maybe that's what you had in mind when you were talking about this. Well, well, I'll, I'll tell you, like the first one you mentioned, you know, about ordering supplies or, or, or you know, we, one of the things that happened is, as all of us probably remember is there was pretty severe supply, supply chain issues. Right. Um, in healthcare during the pandemic. And, you know, that most famously PPE, right? Like personal protective equipment and things like gloves or whatever, but, you know, even medication. So, you know, I could see a situation and, 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 you know, I, 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 uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think things like insulin, you know, there were, there were, there were times when, um, you know, it was not, it was not as easy as it was before the pandemic to get insulin. And obviously if you're someone who is a diabetic and need insulin, you know, that's, right. That's, you know, pretty, pretty severe. And you could see a situation where, you know, with, with good intention, um, somebody doubles a prescription, you know, I'm saying a healthcare provider yes. says, you know, I'm worried about this patient not being able to get their insulin and, you know, over orders, um, 
to you know as a way of like combating supply pay, uh, supply chain issues. Uh, yeah. um, but then that you know the uh, looking at that another way that you know that might be overutilization. Um, right. And and so I think um, you know we have to think through a little bit a, a lot of you know, healthcare kind of in, I guess, probably over the last 10 years, and I'm, you know, far from an expert in sort of like the healthcare management consulting side of things. But I know that, you know, having inventory um, is very, very expensive. And, um, you know, a lot of, I think the thinking was, well, let's keep as little inventory as possible because it, you know, it's really easy to get things delivered in, you know, 24 hours notice, 48 hours notice. And that wound up being something, um, you know, that, that, uh, of a challenge during COVID when, when there were supply chain issues. And, you know, I think there still are to a certain extent today. So I think, you know, maybe some of that thinking has to change. Um, and you know, this, the second thing you mentioned, maybe this is a little more attenuated from what was happening in that pain management, um, clinic case, but, you know, I think, both because of technology and, and, you know, good technological innovations that allow, um, you know, care that used to require, you know, a, a, an acute care, you know, research hospital that, you know, yeah. not so many years later can be done by a plug-in on your smartphone by, you know, a, a home health nurse or, or, or something like that. And that's good because that, you know, in the long run decreases the cost of care and it um, yes. allows people to remain not institutionalized for longer in their life, which I think is a good thing, um, especially as our population skews older and older, I think, over the next few decades. Um, But I think we're going to see a shift to more outpatient services and, you know, more of a hesitance uh, for people to come into healthcare facilities and um, more of a demand to make a lot of things outpatient. And that, you know, raises its own set of compliance challenges, you know, scope of practice issues and, um, you know, monitoring monitoring that appropriately. Um, and even the use of, you know, non-physicians or, you know, allied healthcare professionals as they're, exactly. you know, often called, I think, um, you know, some of this is just being driven by the cost of care and trying to decrease that, which is, you know, uh, an understandable goal. Um, but, but I, you know, I, th- I think that more and more allied healthcare professionals are, you know, being empowered in different states to do things that five right. years ago, 10 years ago um, could only be done by a physician and could only really be done, you know, in somewhere like an operating theater or, or you know, with a lot of, you know, multi-million dollar equipment surrounding them. Um, and that's going to, you know, what what is the standard of care in that kind of right. situation, right? Like, we don't necessarily have case law on that yet. Yeah. Um, you know, all sorts of those questions. Yeah. You know, and I just from you know, to your point, yes, that it reduces cost of care, that sort of thing. And then you get lazy people like me who just like it for convenience. Like I, before the pandemic, I had never personally done a telehealth visit. Um, and then during the pandemic, I had multiple. And I'm like, this is the way to go because I don't want to get in my car, go drive. And I mean, no, you, for you, sure. you were much more thoughtful in your explanation. You were thinking about people who, who couldn't afford it. I was just thinking to myself lazily. I'm like, okay, I can get this done in the next half hour. I don't have to waste an hour to go and an hour to come back. And, and uh, so I think some of this too is driven just by convenience, right? Like we live on our phones, we do banking, we pay bills, we look at our kids' grades, we, you know, whatever we do, we do on the phone now. And I think healthcare is going to, I think just the the marketplace and, and the patients are going to demand 
more of that as well as our lives in general become more tied to, to you know, for better or for worse, uh, tied to using these technologies. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I, I think maybe this is a little more removed from COVID, but I think we see um, in a couple of other veins in the last couple of years, and, you know, you mentioned some of the, uh, you know, federal government task forces, and there's, you know, a number right. of them that work through DOJ or OCR or um, Department of Health and Human Services. And, you know, there's state ones as well, especially in big states like California and Texas. Um, and I think we're seeing, you know, a trend towards greater cr- criminalization of misconduct. Yeah. Um, I see more and more, and, you know, what I'm reading and, you know, like you, I, I, I read those, uh, you know, those DOJ announcements and, you know, subscribe to uh, probably more than necessary number of like, you know, emails and blogs and things like that. And I think we're seeing a real, both a real uptick on the criminalization side um, that, you know, and some of this is just driven by, um, you know, I think there's a lot of righteous populist outrage towards healthcare fraud. Um, It's, it's pretty bipartisan. There's not a heck of a lot of things that are bipartisan. Right. uh, And, you know, in this country anymore. Um, But I think, you know, just about both, both sides of the aisle can get behind, uh, you know, the government not wanting to write as, you know, a, a check for fraud, waste and abuse, you know, activities that constitute fraud, waste and abuse. It comes out of our tax dollars. Right. Um, and um, I think we're also seeing, even on the civil side, a real explosion of, you know, whistleblower claims um, and in a real growth in that plaintiff's bar. Um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, some of it, it, you know, might just be that there is more data available. I think there's a perception that those cases are easier to pursue than they might have been in the past. You know, things that, you know, when I was a younger lawyer would have taken months and months of, you know, combing through bankers boxes with documents can now, you know, you get something electronically, you can run, you know, different searches. You know, there's a whole field of data science that didn't exist not so long ago. And, you know, detecting and proving these cases of fraud, waste, and abuse and false claims and things like that um, is getting easier. And our system makes it, you know, not only that, but profitable, um, you know, to pursue. So I think, uh, you know, I I talked about in the beginning of our conversation that I I was happy to sort of see a lot of compliance being driven by, you know, mergers and acquisitions and, and, you know, things that I guess for lack of a better term, make people money. Um, But there's still plenty going on in terms of acuity of enforcement. And, you know, one of like sort of the major roles of the compliance department and the compliance officer in an organization is to, you know, try to remain vigilant to uh, to that within their own organization and be able to, um, you know, defend and show a paper trail of of you know good faith efforts to prevent that. Yeah, well, you know, you and I reconnected a few months ago at uh, you know a national healthcare conference, and um, I don't know which all the speakers you listened to, but there were a couple that I listened to from the government that were talking about just that the data analytics and how they're they're really using that more and more to. You know, of course, just because you find an outlier doesn't mean there's fraud or but that sure does sift through a lot of the rest of the haystack, uh, you know, to find those needles where there is, um, you know, wrongdoing. And 
you know, I think of Christy Grimm, I think who's the, you know, the, uh, the inspector general now, uh, she spoke about that. And, and there were some others that, that kind of spoke about that data analytics as a, as a key tool that they're using. Um, the other thing you mentioned was this criminalization. So one other hat that I wear, I teach um, at my uh, alma mater, my, the medical school where I graduated from, they have a, a, a master's degree in patient safety leadership. And um, as faculty, we, were, we, we did a webinar recently about um, a nurse who was convicted in, I don't know if you're familiar with this case in Tennessee. Um, she made an, an honest mistake. Um, I guess maybe I'm simplifying things a little bit and gave the patient the patient the wrong medication, that patient ended up dying. And medication errors happen all over the place and they're tragic, um, but do they rise to the level of, of, of a criminal activity? And, and the prosecutors in that state went after her and she was found guilty of a crime. Uh, fortunately, the, the judge, the, the sentence, and I'm showing my bias here, but I, I kind of felt like, I'm not sure we should criminalize that type of activity. It, it kind of dampers, it puts a damper on uh, patient safety efforts where you need transparency and people to admit mistakes and those sorts of things. Um, so that was kind of interesting to me. I know that may be a little off topic, but you, you mentioned criminalization and, and I know you have this legal background. It's interesting, you know, our prosecutors, do you see them as, um, as, going after uh, these types of things and, and making them crimes to make examples or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, first of all, I, I definitely would never ascribe, you know, bad intentions to a prosecutor or, or you know, anyone um, in, in like an enforcement role. I think that, you know, the work they do is certainly important. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 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 like I said, you know, a couple of minutes ago, I do think that we have um, the best healthcare system in the world. And one of the reasons that that's true is there is, um, I think, a higher sense of accountability um, yeah. than than there is in other places. But, you know, to be fair, though, that accountability can create challenges for a provider, um, you know, whether you're an individual doctor or a provider organization. Um, look, I, I, I think, in, you know, I don't want to say this in a cynical way, but I, you know, have a friend who was a, a former assistant U.S. attorney um, and you know, now working in the private sector, but, um, you know, had had lunch with her not that long ago. And, and we were sort of talking about how you know, things work when you're in a government prosecutor's office. And, you know, what she told me is like, look, Nick, I, you know, she worked for the DOJ, you know, the, yeah. the U.S. Attorney's Office. And, you know, it's it's uh, probably the largest law firm in the world, if you think yes. of it in terms of numbers. But it's not necessarily, you know, the, the most funded on a case-by-case -case basis um, yeah, law point. firm in the world. And she said, you know, I, I walk into my office and I have a stack you know, a, a yard high of files that I might look into. And I, you know, I've got one investigator that, you know, can do, you know, only so many hours a week of investigation. And, um, and you know, I, the way I get promoted is by, uh, you know, by wins, by by settlements, sure. by uh, things like that, you know, in the same way that like uh, if you're a plaintiff's attorney or a contingency attorney, um, you know, the way you're successful is is by settlements and, you know, wins as well. So, you know, in a way the 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 structure is the same, but, you know, one of the things she told me, which I think is a really good lesson for those of us in the compliance world, is that she's like, you know, how do I decide 
what's going to be, you know, uh, an easy win, because what I don't want yeah. is a win that takes me two years, you know, of full-time devotion. Um, and, I, you know, maybe I win that case, but I, I can't afford, I'm not, I, I won't get promoted. I won't get whatever. I can't afford to spend thousands and thousands of hours yeah. on a single case. What I look for is chaos. And, you know, uh-huh. And, and this really resonated with me working in the compliance space that she said, you know, if, if my investigator goes in somewhere and, you know, maybe we have a little bit of a whiff of there's some billing impropriety going on, but we don't ask the direct question first, you know, ask a question of, can I, you know, who's your compliance officer? You're know, asking random, you know, the random person, who's your compliance officer or, Hey, could you show me your policies on, um, you know, I don't know, something in particular. Um, Can you show me your, and you know, if the answer that I get is deer in headlights, like, (laughs) uh, well, I'm not really sure where to find that. Um, Here's some policies, you know, I think some of them are old. I'm not really sure where the updated ones are. You know, there's someone who does know, but she's on vacation this week. Could you come back next week? Um, You know, if, if that is your, if that's your answer, she's like, well, then I know to dig in, right? Like that's a place where there's chaos. And in a place where there's chaos, I'm going to be able to find something that I can use as leverage for a quick settlement, you know, and, you know, by the same token, if the questions I ask are, you know, easily like, uh, you know, can you show me a list of your, you know, HIPAA incidents and, and right. uh, you know, in the last two years, can you show me your plans of correction on this issue? Da, da, da. And somebody just types a few buttons on, you know, the terminal, you know, would you like that in, would you like that in electronic yeah, form or should I hit print? Right. right. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Here's your stack, you know. Yeah. Um, then no I know it's there. not worth my time, right? And then I know it's not worth my time. Not because yeah. like that means someone is perfect and I couldn't find something if I really looked, but yeah. that's going to be, you know, that's someone with their ducks in a row. That's going to be someone who's going to be able to come up with a defense, you know, to anything I can bring. So I, you know, I walk across the street or my investigator walks across the street. So, you know, I, I, like to tell that story to the organizations that I work with because people often ask the question of like, you know, why does this little issue that seems like dotting your I's and crossing your T's really matter? You know, that's not a big deal. Um, you know, and the reason is it's almost like broken windows theory. If you remember back in like the 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 early Giuliani days, I mean, he can't have this like in policing theory of, um, you know, if you take a neighborhood and you clean up the graffiti and you clean up the garbage and you cite people for broken windows and stuff like that, then you'll prevent the bigger crimes, you know, down the line, you make it into a better neighborhood. It's, it's almost like that same theory that, you know, if you're careful enough to dot your I's and cross your T's and, you know, sweat the small stuff, I guess, as the expression goes, then you're probably, that's probably going to come back to you, you know, both in terms of the story that I just told, Hold if there's an investigator, but also just a culture of compliance where people realize like this isn't an organization that cuts corners. We do things right. You know, if we say you've got to complete your online HIPAA training by, um, right. you know, June 1st, you do it by June 1st. Like we don't right, have 50% right. of the organization, you know, not doing it. And then nobody follows up on them. And then there's a HIPAA breach and the investigator asks for the training records. And you're like, well, most people did, but no, actually not the people who are involved in this breach turns out. Um, yes. And I've seen that. You know, I've seen that time and time again. It's like, wow, that's a really bad fact. <laughs> you yeah, know, that, that, exactly. that you did HIPAA training, but the people that were, you know, really involved in this breach didn't do it. And nobody even followed up with them 
as yeah. to why you know they didn't complete their training, even right, though right. you might have paid a million dollars to some online, uh, you know, sis, on, on, online uh, you know education provider. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, those are those are examples of uh, of uh, you know the areas I think that 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 people should focus on. Yeah, that's really good insight. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, the, the work that the the prosecutors do is very valuable. And and by no means are they. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I hope I wasn't disparaging them because the work they do is is essential. And of course, all of these things are very case specific. And everyone has, as you mentioned, timelines and and priorities that they have to work through. And, and there's decisions that have to be made. And uh, so that's really awesome insight. Um, we're kind of getting close to the end of our time together. It always flies by. I want to give you, though, a moment to kind of, uh, if you have any last minute thoughts, but then also, you know, how can people reach you, your website or whatever you feel is the best way to kind of show the work that you do. Uh, do you have any last minute thoughts and then and how can people reach you? Um, well, in terms of how can people can can reach us, um, uh, as uh, as you mentioned, CJ, our, our uh our, our consulting firm is uh, Compliagent, um, and you can you know find our website at www.compliagent.com. Um, and you know my my name is Nick Merkin again, and my email address is just my first initial and last name. So N like Nancy, M E R K I N at Compliagent.com. Uh, so feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to connect with people and you know answer questions if people have them, and you know see if there's ways that um, um, we can be helpful as an organization to you. Um, you know, in terms of just uh, of, of just closing thoughts, um, you know, I I you know would just like to say that um, a, a lot of times, um, you know, compliance officers are seen as you know kind of the police force in the organization, right. um, and I think you know that's never the hat I want to wear. I mean, you know, it, it really is, it really is part of the role, you know, and sometimes it is. And, and sometimes, you know, I've told people like, Hey, use me as the bad guy, throw me under the bus, say that this is sure. coming from the compliance officer or something like that. And that can be really valuable, um, you know, to an organization to have somebody like that. But, you know, when compliance works, um, I think it's is when we do our job best to be collaborative. And you know what I like to tell people is, you know, the work you're doing, and this is particularly when I'm, you know, talking to the to the to the healthcare providers and healthcare professionals, they're like, you know, your work is what's important here, not mine. Right. Um, you know, you're you're serving a vulnerable population and you're serving an important population and delivering great quality of care. And my job isn't to create roadblocks and hurdles and hindrances for you to do that. My job is to try to, you know, when you have questions and figure out how you want to get to a clinical goal, an operational goal to serve patients better or, you know, to fulfill the mission, the vision values of the healthcare facility, my job is to help you find a way to do that in a compliant way, um, yes. you know, and be there for you when you have questions, when you have concerns and, you know, even something like the compliance hotline, um, you know, I like to tell people, it's like, I don't even want to call it that. That should be like a compliance questions line. Right. Like go. it's it's not there, you know, solely, you know, even though admittedly sometimes it is there for someone right. to raise something that needs to be raised and maybe anonymously and something that needs to be investigated. But 90% of 
the calls to that line or the emails or the communications with, you know, that kind of function should be asking questions of like, Hey, Nick, can you weigh in on this? You know, we're, you know, we've seen this challenge in our department. We've seen this challenge with, uh, you know, patient intake. We've seen this challenge in billing. Um, Can we meet about it? Because you may have some ideas on the right way to do this. Um, And I think that's where we as, as compliance professionals do really good work um, and, and really add value in the ways that I was talking about in the past. Yeah, I love that, Nick. You know, that's part of the reason why I loved my my uh, I've loved my career in compliance. Is I felt like you know I, I came from a clinical background, but left that, and I felt like if I can help the the docs and the hospitals and the people focus on what their mission is, which is what you said, it's to take care of patients and take care of people. That's really the mission. We want to make sure they do that without shackles on, right? Without um, do it compliantly, but without a lot of roadblocks. And so it's like we're aiding them, we're helping them in, in achieving their their true mission. And I, I love that. So thank you for reminding us of, of, us of the importance of that. Great. Well, and thank you again for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Nick, so much. It's always a pleasure to, to speak with you. I love your insights and, and uh, you put things in such a, a good you've painted a nice picture about where compliance is today, where it came from a little bit, where it is today and where it might be going. And so we, we thank you so much. And we thank all of our listeners for listening and hope you'll listen uh, again uh, to our next episode. Uh, and until then, uh, be safe. And thanks, everybody. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthcity.com.